Well, if you have your Bible, you can turn to the New Testament book of Jude. This is, I think, this, yes, it is our final sermon, Ju- sermon in Jude. And I always come to these things when I say the final sermon in Colossians or the final sermon in Luke. Uh, as, as best we understand it, it's the final sermon. It always comes with a bit of sadness. This is the Word of God and you wish you could just swim in it all day and night. And frankly, personally, preach all day and night, but... We'll have to wait for heaven for that kind of stuff. I'm going to read verses 24 and 25. While you're turning there, page 866 in the church Bibles, if you have questions this morning about Christ, the Bible, or what you've heard this morning, as always, I would love to be able to try to answer those questions for you when our time together is done. Okay, so if you have the NIV, you'll notice above there the... the um, doxology or subscription there and that's important so okay let's let's hear the word of the lord verse 24 to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only god our savior be glory majesty power and authority through jesus christ our lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Let's bow together and pray. So when Satan tempts us to despair and reminds us of the guilt within upward, we look and see Christ there who made an end to all our sin because and only because the sinless Savior died. Our sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Christ And pardon me and all those who believe. So Father and gracious God, how great you are. And it is to you alone we now look. And how we thank you, God, this morning for the great truth of the gospel that in our place condemned Christ stood. And so we ask in the time that you have given in the middle of a Memorial Day weekend, as we think about the men and women who set aside their life for a cause greater than themselves on still the Lord's day that in your mercy that we'll be able to continue in the highest form of human activity there is. The public worship of Jesus Christ. The highest form of human activity, Father. And we pray that we would finish this letter strong. You've told us, God, that we ought to love you with all our minds. So we ask then for the help of the Holy Spirit to that end in order that we would bow and worship and we would honor your name this morning and that your people would be helped and those still dead in their sins would be awakened because God, you're the only one that can make them alive. And so we ask all these things and and so much more, Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come, ye thirsty, come and welcome, God's free bounty glorify, true belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Come, ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. View Him prostrate in the garden. On the ground your Maker lies. 
on the bloody tree behold him. Sinner, will this not suffice? Let not conscience make you linger. Not of fitness fondly dreamed. All the fitness God requires is to feel your need of him. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. Joseph Hart, 1759, come ye sinners, poor and needy. Now, I can't really live without hymns. A day rarely goes by when I don't think of one or sing one because, frankly, I need them. Hymns help me a lot. They save me and they help me worship our King. They help me understand the Bible and the gospel more clearly. They help me to pray. They help me think through things uh, when I'm afraid. They help me when I'm troubled. They help me before I sin. They help me after I sin. They help me when I'm unsure of what to do. Gospel hymns, they help me. And when we are able to sing hymns honestly, in spirit and in truth, as Jesus said, was part of worship... It is a signal of a person, Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, it's a a signal of a person being filled with the Holy Spirit, which is why singing in public worship with our whole hearts and our whole minds is so awfully important. And hymns, biblical hymns, help us all to know that the only God, because everything that a man or a woman or a young person may know about God ultimately does not come by our own self-deductive reasoning. But it comes by God's self-disclosure, by God's revelation. God's self-disclosure and revelation in His Word and in His Son, who not only conveys it, but it is actually it. Jesus, the living Word. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 138.2. You have exalted above all things your name and your word. And I say all that because Jude ends this letter in what theologians call and what the NIV calls a doxology. And a doxology is a compound word. Doxa means glory and logia means word. So a doxology is glory words. So a doxology is a hymn or a liturgical uh, often repeated prayer designed for public worship. It's fundamental that you understand this. It's designed for personal use, absolutely, but it's designed predominantly for public worship in order that God would be made known with absolute clarity and with absolute truthfulness. Glory words, then, that are absolutely true about God declared by God's people. In other words, the doxology is designed in order that when the church gathers... They can all say this doxology or sing this doxology together and together affirm this as true. So C.S. Lewis would call doxologies state secrets that need to go public. So let me give you an example. This is Romans 16. This is a doxology. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel... The message I proclaimed about Jesus Christ and keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, all true, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings, true by the command of the eternal God, true, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith, true to the only wise God, true, be glory forever, true through Jesus Christ, true. 
And then the end, amen. That's Romans 16. Some of you might know this one. Glory to God the Father. Glory to the Holy Spirit. Glory to the Son. As it was in the beginning, is now, and evermore should be or shall be world without end. So doxologies are written in the Bible so that the whole church, when she gathers together, as she should, might be able to pray together and sing together and affirm together at the end of both, whether we're seeing or saying it by saying amen. That's why that word amen is so important, because amen means so be it. We affirm this as true about God. We affirm this doxology together as one body united before God as true, which is one of the many reasons why public worship is so dreadfully important. But it's also why it's so dangerous to come into public worship with your own words, if you would, or your own opinions, or your own convictions, or your own felt needs of what we need to worship God. Because if we do this, we've turned worship, if you would, upside down, and we made it about us first, thereby replacing our needs in worship above the one God who we are actually worshiping, who has made quite clear how we are to worship Him. Think of it this way. We would not give our children a birthday party and then wonder what kind of cake we would like. Would we do that? That would be silly. It's the same here. When we put our needs first in worship, loved ones, that is what the Bible calls idolatry. And doxologies from the Holy Scriptures, what they do is align our minds to what is true and what is right about God, what is true and right about Jesus, and what is true and right about the gospel. And doxologies expose what is not true and what is not right in our minds or others about God and about Jesus and the gospel, thereby exposing false worship. Now, listen carefully. Doxologies may not expose false worship here and now to you and I because we humans are tricky people and, and we can hide everything and no one honestly knows our heart condition when we worship. But it does and it is exposed now and there in heaven before the throne of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Listen to the words of Jesus. Matthew 15, 8. These people honor me with their lips, outward, but Jesus says their hearts are far from me. You see, Christian worship is about God and the first four commandments of the ten and the teachings of Christ and the apostles. We learn in these things, we are told how God would have us worship. And the best way, the best, best maxim to come into worship is this. God in His glory before men and women and young people and their needs. So, so think with me. If you, if you throw yourself back into this context in Jude, that Jude writes in, there are deceivers in the church. They follow themselves and not the one gospel. And this is where you're going to need your Bible open. They say that Jesus isn't king, verse 4b. So look at your Bible if you have it open. They are attempting to divide the church, verse 19. In their self-ruling lawless ways, verse 8. Albeit with religious overtones, that's verse 8a. But they don't have the spirit, verse 19. So they're not Christians. And so they're clinging to a wrong gospel, verse 4a. And this wrong gospel gives them a free license to sin gospel anytime they want. And they're following their own imagined leadings. Verses 8 and 9. 
and they have no faith. That was verses 5 and 7. What was the problem with all those entities in verses 5 and 7? Ultimately, they had no faith, and they had no faith. They didn't believe. And everyone knows, every good Christian knows, that the righteous can only live by faith. Consequently, as most of you know, then, these letters would have been read during public worship to the whole church. And this is where you have to really think when you open up your Bibles. Okay, are we going to be able to affirm this together as a congregation, what Jude just said? And so here you go. The deceivers are in the church. Can they sing this? Can can they pray this before God? Can they say amen to this? Can they say it and mean it? Can they say amen to him who is able to keep you from falling? Can they say, verse 25, to the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's the very thing that the deceivers deny? That Jesus isn't Lord, that he's not king. Can they say this or are they about ready to lie? So so this doxology and all doxologies are far more than just a nice, sweet way to end a Christian worship service. And we've got we to understand that. Now, it's standard practice for apostles to begin with a prayer and to end with a prayer in their epistles. It's just, it's just a normal pattern. And I think it shows their frailty because they know they need God's power as they write this letter. It's not by accident that we begin our preaching in prayer and we end our preaching in prayer. John Calvin wrote this, Our words of exhortation, our energies can do nothing unless the effect derives from the mighty power of God. In other words, we say it all the time here, we can't do what we should without God's help. We can't do anything as we should with God's help. And we reveal that reality through prayer in Jesus' name. Public prayer, private prayer, corporate prayer. So Jude began this letter, verse 2, with a prayer. And now he ends the letter in the form of a doxology in prayer. And so he's kind of gone full circle. Verse 2, to the called love kept. And now verse 24, to those who will be kept from falling. And so this doxology is that which God will do for those in Christ. Because God, because without God's grace in Jesus Christ, nothing would stop us from falling. Okay? Without God's grace in Jesus Christ, nothing would stop us from falling. And Jude is saying to his dear friends, and and that's a phrase, by the way, he uses three times in this letter. He's telling us you are to have every confidence that you're going to be kept safely by your king. And the onslaught of animalistic rages, that's verse 10, these deceivers who have secretly slipped into the church, verse 4, who are godless, faithless, again, verses 5 through 7, even though they come across as religious, God will shield you from them. And of course, God will shield you from your own horrible sins. It's a wonderful encouragement. So we have three headings to work through. The first one, if you have a worship folder, you can turn to the back there. He is able to keep you from falling. That's verse 24a. He's able to keep you from falling. So the word falling, um, translated NIV falling, is the word apataistas. And why did I say it like that? Well, that's the way you're supposed to say it. And that word is the word that we would translate apostate. And apostate is a rebel or a defection from the gospel because they haven't uh, genuinely, genuinely, honestly placed their faith in the gospel in Christ at all. And so time bears this out. That's why we're warned about apostates. So for example, 1 John 2.19, this is 
the Apostle John, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Hebrews 3.14, we have, we have come, we know we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence that we had at first. So in this case, this stumbling is somehow these enemies in the church, these deceivers are so strong that they, come, they can come across, especially to new Christians, as being so strong that they can steal from the Christians the very faith they have. They can be, if you would, taken out of the hand of God and fall. And, and here Jude is promising his readers that he, that's God our Savior, that's verse 25, so, so God is personal, God's not an idea, God's not a raw system of beliefs, God's not a process, he's, he's a person, a personal God, the only God, he is able. Now again, that word able is awfully important, dunami is, is the Greek word, it's part of the root word of the word that we would get dynamite from, and here able means I am power. I am powerful. I, God, am able to keep you from stumbling, to keep you from defecting, to keep you from being stolen from me because of the deceivers. I, God, am able to keep you drowning, from drowning in your sins. I, God, am able to, to, to help you overcome the frailty of your frame and, and the enormity of the task of living for Jesus Christ correctly in these days because I know you know this. Authentic Christian living in our context is difficult. It will lead to trials and to battles as we contend for the gospel, and it's difficult and it wears you down. Well, good news God has the power to keep you. Now, that's another important word. It's a military word in the first century. So, the idea you should have in your he head is a military guard watching over you. Now, if you're thinking this is an absolutely wonderful privilege, you have God at His post for His beloved. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, just think through that just for a minute. Almighty God at His post, watching over, keeping us in safety, in our salvation, so that we will not be taken, we will not dissent, we will not defy, and we will not revolt. So God saves us and He keeps saving us because God is able to keep us from falling. Listen to the commentator Manton. Our necessities and difficulties are so great that nothing less than divine power can support us. Who, and then he quotes 1 Peter, who through faith are shielded by God's power, 1 Peter 1.5. And then he quotes a second century church leader. Listen to what he says. Your flesh says, ego deficiam. You will fail. The world says, ego decipium. I will deceive you. The devil says, ego irapium. I will take them away. But God says, ego custodium. I will keep them. I will never fail them. I will never forsake them. And beloved, that is the only place where our safety lies. Unless God keeps us, we will fall. And Jude says, no one's falling because God is keeping. Now, when you come to this, if you do not know your frailty, then none of this will really be a big deal. I mean, if you come with like strength to this, 
You know, the, the, the young kids, the, the, the kids that are, go to proms, they're so clever. So the, these are my nieces and nephews in the South and the kids here, they have this thing now where they, they do that thing where they have the superhero emblem, they have a superhero t-shirt, so it could be Green Lantern, Flash, Superman, and they take their picture and they go like that, you know, and they're so cute, it's cute, and then they, they do one of those poses like strength, you know, it's, it's okay, they're kids, it's, but they're trying to come off as powerful, that's cute, I wish I would have thought of that, that does not work in Christianity, it doesn't work at all. It's one of the great burdens of our day. Because they come to us and say, if you could just get this, and if you could just study this, and if you could have a few of those, and you get around these people and get around that material, then, you know, bingo, it's super Christian. Really? God, you might be able to keep them from falling. I mean, look at them. But, you know, if we were... If it was up to us alone to keep ourselves in our salvation, we would no doubt lose our salvation. Jude's not throwing out fluff here. The struggle against sin would be too much for the Christian. Therefore, the Bible's instruction that our salvation is not based on works, but Christ's once and for all work at Calvary's cross, that rings true here. But again, remember the context. Question, will God be able to save us from these dangerous people Will, will we be saved from falling to these deceivers or falling, verse 16, under their constant accusations and grumblings? So God, are we going to fall by their deception or fall by their accusations? God, are we going to fall? Will, will you be able to do something? Question, answer now to him who is able to keep you from falling. And again, because of the times, only the arrogant would come to this truth, this beautiful undeserved privilege, God watching over you and treat it or respond to it as if we barely even need it to be true. John 10, 27 and 29, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them. It's the same word here, uh, this aposta root word. No one can make them apostate out of my Father's hand. And so as you read that, you feel the tension of, of Father's hand, Son's hand, but someone is trying to actually snatch me away. See, so it's real. Snatch me away. But Jesus says, no, it's not going to happen. They can pull and they can tongue, tug. And that doesn't feel good if you've been in that situation. No, but no one can take them out of their hand. That's our first point. He is able to keep you from falling. Verse 24a. Verse 24b. Second point, he's able to present you before his presence. And so what Jude here is, he takes his readers to the final judgment scene where God's glory will, will be absolutely fully revealed in all its awful purity. Now, why do I say that? Because I say that because listen to the Bible. Uh, this is the Old Testament prophet Malachi. And, and by the way, this is why redemptive history is so important and that whenever you read your Old Testament, you, you have, if you would, your Jesus glasses on. You have the work of Christ and his redemptive uh, work before you all the time. So this, listen to what Malachi says. Malachi 2.11 who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? And these are rhetorical questions, and the, the correct answer is 
No one is able to stand on the basis of the lives that we lived. No one can endure the day of his coming. Okay, then this is David, Psalm 15, 1 and 2. He writes, Who may live on your holy hill? Heaven, presence. He whose walk is blameless, spotless, faultless, and who does what is righteous. And if you take that to its honest, logical limit, this would mean that no one can dwell in the presence of the holy God. Listen to John Stott. No one can produce the integrity and the moral purity which God really demands from his people. Okay, then listen to Isaiah. Isaiah is a major prophet. He's a man of God. He reminds us of the absolute terror that should be produced in a mere man or a mere woman or young person before the presence of God. This is what Isaiah says. Isaiah 6.5 Woe to me! I cried. I am ruined. Dead. From a man of unclean lips. So then even when you get to your New Testament, the Apostle John, he sees the glorified Christ. Revelation 1.17 Listen to what he says. When I saw him, I fell on my feet as though dead. I've got to read you this quote from John Calvin. It's helpful. Hence that dread and amazement with which the Scriptures uniformly relates holy men were struck and overwhelmed whenever they beheld the presence of God. Men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. And that's what Isaiah was doing. And that's what John was doing. And that's what David and Malachi were saying. And the point of all this is surely this. All of us here, including our mothers and our fathers, our sisters and our brothers, our aunts, our uncles, our children, our grandchildren, our neighbors, our friends, those who would call us enemies, all of us will have to stand before this awful majesty and purity of the only glorious God. Question, how will anyone be presented blameless and faultless before God? How in the dickens can we stand blameless, no fault, no blemish, no stain before the mighty purity of God? Well, unless we stood in the righteousness of another, unless someone was covered in shame in order that we would be covered in glory, unless someone was forsaken in order that we would be forgiven, unless someone bore our sins so we would be able to have their imputed righteousness. Right? Unless someone had the face of the Father turned away from them in His wrath in order that we might be able to look into that face with joy. You, you know this hymn. When He shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I in, in Him be found clothed in His righteousness alone, faultless, faultless to stand before the throne. So only the Christian at this presentation in heaven takes place only the Christian will know nothing of the fear and the rage and the anger and the trauma and the absolute whelming, uh, wailing, overwhelming wailing that will be part and parcel of so many as they are ushered in to the presence of God this one last final time. So instead, Jude says, great joy. Do you see it there? Present you before His presence with great joy. The, the Greek words... The phrase wild, ecstatic joy. This is intense delight. That is what the keeping power of the Lord will do. Uh, this is one of the many victories that Christ won for us. We are going to go in the best sense of the word. We're going to go nuts with joy on that day. 
So, so you need help here to understand that. Let me give you one little illustration. Some of you will be old enough to remember when television had the late, late, late movie. You remember that? Typically it came after the news and usually it was on Friday night or Saturday night. And so when, when, when all the stars were aligned in my home, you know, the parents said you could stay up. It was Friday night, so you could stay up. Your grades were fine, so your conscience wouldn't bother you, you know, that you were staying up. And your brothers weren't beating the tar out of you, so you, you know, you're alive and it's Friday night, and everybody's in a good mood, and here comes the thing, the late, late, late show. And it was a movie, and, and so every once in a while, the network would just give you a zinger, a good one. So what's a good one in my world? Okay, 1972, Planet of the Apes. Oh. <laughs> we, no kidding, we were running around the Planet of the Apes, get the drinks and the popcorn and the Planet of the Apes. I'm staying up all night. You know, I can't wait to that part. Take your filthy hands off me. You, I, I'm not going to say the rest. But you understand. Okay, we were kids. Kids do that. It's one of the wonderful things about being a kid that you can get happy about a Friday night movie with apes and people and stuff. But you see, on that day when Jesus Christ will present us before the Father, so you had Jesus Christ present himself in the Gospels, you had Jesus Christ present himself to you in the Gospels, in the preaching of the Gospel, you have Jesus Christ who destroyed death and brought life and immortality through the preaching of the Gospel, through the work of his Gospel, in order that we would be found at, in the presence of God, blameless, faultless, with great joy. So the one who died on the cross and who's alive, he is going to present us before the Father in absolute purity. And at that moment, there will be emanating out of all of us the most purest, the most exciting joy we have ever known. And listen, not only is God behind it all, yes, but that sense of joy and excitement will never, ever, 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 ever leave you in heaven. Right? Never leave you. Okay, so you know you have a good game on the basketball court. Glory for like five minutes. Right? But as the years go by, the story gets a little less and a little less and a little less and a little less until you're just an old man bragging about something you did 30 years ago. Now we need to get to our final point, but there's something that we can't miss here. This is absolutely true and, and we can't overlook this scene. Because not only is this scene about us and God and God's wonderful love for us, but this scene, and probably more importantly, is between God and the Son. Now listen carefully. The Son has infinite love for the Father. And that infinite love was all along the basis which assures us that Christ will keep for His Father what He has given Him. And vice versa. The Father's infinite love for the Son makes it certain that the Father will protect those He has given the Son. So so just take yourself out of the picture just for a moment. So you have the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father and that love is the key to this whole joyful presentation. Listen to your Bible, John 17. This is Jesus' prayer to the Father. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be where I am. So you have Jesus asking the Father for us. 
that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. All I have is yours. All you have is mine. I've declared to them your name and I will declare it that the love that which you love me may be in them and I in them. So this is fantastic and it helps. This is the scene that Jude writes. Uh, this, is, this is family love. This is the son to the father. Dad, you, you deserve this. Just, just look at them. Look at them. They're spotless and they're blameless and they're so happy. Just like it should be. Just like you planned, Father. And Father, look, look how joyful these people are. They're, they're no longer sinners. They were once sinners. They were dead and they were dying. They were awful. But look at them now, Father. Father, you planned this. And then the Father back to the Son. Yes, Son. But you provided this. I am so pleased with you. I'm so pleased with what you did. This is a happy day that will never end. Now, you have to understand this. Sometimes when we read John 6 and we say, you know, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. I'll lose none of these that you've given me, but raise them on the last day. Sometimes we're so tempted to think only about ourselves and the perseverance that God has with his people. And that's fine. But but don't miss this. This is the bond and the pledge between father and son, between son and father. Father, I am going to do what's necessary to keep your people. Uh, Son, I am going to do what's necessary so that your people can be kept. Don't ever miss that in these things. This, This eternal love between God the Father and God the Son. That's why I always say, you know, just... Everything can't be always about us. It gets, it gets fatiguing after a while. Those are high thoughts, congregation, about God and His Son. And we need to have them. Okay, He is able to keep you from falling. Verse 24a, He's able to present you before His presence faultless with great joy. Verse 24b, and then finally, He's absolutely wonderful, isn't He? Verse 25, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. So let's just work through this quickly. Jude, Jude says there's only one God. That's a Trinitarian mystery. This one God is our only Savior. This is the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and it's affirmed at the very throne of God. There's only one Savior and there's only one God. Matthew 1, and you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And to this one God be glory. And that's the word doxa that we talked about in the beginning. Now this doxa is just a little bit different. This is the public, visible, verbal acclaim of God. And everyone's going to see it. As they are brought before the presence of God in Christ, they will see it. To this God, glory and majesty. And this majesty is the, is the awful transcendence and the eternal right of God to rule. So at that moment, it's almost going to be like, how dare anyone remain self-willed and self-willed ruled in the world that I made? How dare anyone? This is my majesty emanating out of God. Power is the Greek word kratos. Now, it means complete and absolute power. And this one word in the whole of the New Testament is only used about God the Father, God the Son, and God the the Holy Spirit. So our power is like pea shooter power. 
in comparison to God's power. Authority. Our Lord has sovereign right and reign over everything. Daniel 4.35 No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? Now, if you love Jesus, that's assuring, isn't it? Let's say you had one of the most horrible weeks you could ever imagine. So you say to yourself, God is sovereign over this. Somehow this passed through his hand. What do you do? Well, I know what I do. The first thing I do is repent. And the second thing I do is bow down and worship to the God. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, what is that? That's the authority of God. And in my little pea shooter power, just bowing down to that reality. Do you see it there? To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And again, the very thing that the deceivers deny by life and lip, Jesus is king. Before all ages, now and forevermore. That pretty much covers everything, right? Eternity past, eternity present, eternity future. So congregation, this is our God. He is not a, a mere nationalistic, jingoistic, regional deity which provides providence for only a few. The whole world is the theater of God's for the display of His divine goodness and His wisdom and His justice and His authority and His power and rule. Now how merciful God is and how wonderful He is and we have nothing to complain about or grumble about, the best thing to do at the end of a doxology is say, Amen. So be it. And worship God. John Stott, his commentary on Jude was so helpful to me. Listen to how he ends. These are the last words of his commentary. Savior, it's such a small world, word, and it has been abused and trivialized. But when the mighty day of God comes... More terrible than we can imagine. When we see for the first time who it is we rebelled against, how perfect His standards are, how ghastly our sin is, how seriously He meant all the Old Testament warnings of judgment on the grumbling Israelites, the rebel angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah, then we shall see with fear and wonder what a mighty work the cross of Christ was and is and shall be forever. The fact that God Himself has acted on our behalf to rescue us from a judgment which we so thoroughly deserve means that the heavens will echo forever with the shouts of joyful praise. And then He ends it. Amen. And so it means everything to us that we have Jude to remind us, Christian, you're called and you're kept and you're loved. Not because of your performance, but because of the performance of Jesus Christ at Calvary. And so even in this, Jesus' mercy is continually sanctifying us to our last breath. And this mercy is a mercy that we need to, to rely on and to keep close to our hearts. And it's a mercy that we need to give to others in light of what the gospel means. And we will be protected, won't we? And we will be found blameless in God's holy presence, won't we? And in this mad, bad world, which sells us short and leaves us high and dry all the time, this world is going to be like a forgotten dream. And we're just going to cast our gaze on Jesus Christ. And according to the Bible, that's going to be like a forever thing. 
It's going to be absolutely terrific. And, and it will be an absolute purity and joy. It's, it's unimaginable, isn't it? It really is. It's beautiful. It's unimaginable. And it's coming. It's coming. And I know, trust me, I know, it's so hard sometimes to believe that it's actually coming. But it's coming. It's coming. And there you have it. A doxology. And I hope that we can all say amen together to it. And I hope we can all say thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow together and pray. Well, Father, it, it is um, impossible to fully express with words the greatness uh, the glory of your name and what you've accomplished for us at Calvary's cross and the humility of the cross and the authority of the cross and the glory of the cross that ushered us and will usher us into absolute safety on this last day. And to know that we will be kept kept from falling, from, from the accusations of the evil one, of the world, of others, and our own conscience is an absolutely wonderful thing. This is the, the purity and the glory of the gospel. You are amazing, God. You are absolutely amazing. And would you please give us the grace to believe that through the rest of this day and on through Monday and Tuesday and on and on and until we die or until Christ returns. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours both this morning and every morning. For Jesus' sake, amen.